This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Did you learn everything you need to know about parenting from the role models you grew up with? Or are you one of the millions of parents who didn't exactly identify with your religion of origin, yet you want to define your own moral compass to help you make the best possible decisions as you raise your own children? Regardless of what your answer is to either one of those questions, we've got something special for you in this particular show. And it's based on two major premises. The first one is that once you become an adult, you have a responsibility to give yourself permission to be a seeker and to define what your own values are regardless of what you've been taught or told by those around you when you were growing up. The second is that our children come to us with a true sense of who they are, and our job is not to make them fit into some box that we or others have determined they should fit into. A parent's job is to pay attention to what lights our kids up and to steer them towards that while guiding them, nurturing them, and keeping them safe. It's all about having values that you and your family can embrace. Those values will guide you as you make your choices about how you want to parent your children. Having a well-thought-out core set of values will also help you as you encounter other people's opinions. When you have a position you can confidently defend, you are less likely to feel pressured to make decisions based on someone else's suggestions. We'll start talking about how you can create your own family's master values when Positive Parenting continues right after this. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. I feel like I'm choking. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital. You know how to react to their asthma attacks. Here's how to prevent them. Call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. Visit www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Christine Crockett-Smith, who's the author of 18 Master Values, Be the Parent You Wish You'd Had. Christine, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. How did you happen to settle on 18 values? It became 18 because when my children were little and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to teach them, the values started growing and I was just studying and listening and learning and after a while everything that I came across fell under one of them for a while so I kind of just stopped at 18 and then tucked them away and just raised my kids. Okay but you you weren't putting these things into place as you were parenting probably like most of us who learned a whole bunch of lessons about how to be a better parent after it was a little late. Fortunately, I did, actually. I, I very consciously knew I did not want to parent abstractly without much thought just because of the way I was raised. So, yeah, when my kids were little and I was watching people around me struggling as much as I was, I did really consciously. I came across the saying, discipline is teaching. And it really rocked my world and made me think, yeah, if they're doing something I wish they weren't doing, I'm supposed to teach them what they should be doing instead. And so that 
made me start trying to figure out what it was that I wanted to teach them. So, yeah, I was actually able to implement it while they were little. Well, that's good. You're, you're a better person already than most of us, I guess, because <laughs> I think uh, so many of us learned lessons after the fact. Well, they, I mean, we learned them and then we're able to implement them on child number two or three. Uh, but uh, the first one often is the one who gets the gets the the undivided attention, but it's uh, it's also the most inexperienced attention. Right, right. Isn't it crazy that they just put them in our arms and send us home with them? <laughs> well, as long as you have a car seat, that's all it takes, apparently. That's all it takes. It's crazy. So, the the values. I mean, it's an interesting way of of putting it and stir in. Tr- not in terms of parenting techniques or lessons, but values. And how do you, how do you define what a value is, and how that is different from just a lesson? Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think everybody has to define that for themselves. I say right in the book that these shouldn't necessarily be everybody's 18. In fact, there's another chapter, chapter 19, where I mentioned some others that came up later in my life. It's more about taking the time, and it's been crazy to me as I've been out talking about the book, the number of adults who get this funny look on their face and think, wow, you know, I've never really thought about what my values are. And that that's across the gamut of religiosity or lack thereof. Um, so it's, for me, defining what a value is, is just something that you decide is really important to you and that you want to focus on and that is somewhat non-negotiable. And what it does when you do take the time to decide what your values are, not what you were told they ought to be by anybody in your life when you were growing up, but what yours really are, is it helps decision-making. It helps you in those moments, those quick little moments when you have to decide between one or two or three or five different choices. It helps you decide what they are. And then even bigger than that, it's so beautiful when I'm talking to parents and they tell me stories about how they did decide what their values were. They did make a decision based on them. And then when someone, whether it's a stranger or a parent or a friend, questions them about the choice they made, they're able to be really confident about it because it was very well thought out and they're able to defend it and not go into that questioning that we parents do so often of like, wow, was that the right thing or not? All right, so let's talk about a couple of these things. We're not going to make it through all 18 of them, but uh, I think one that was fairly close to the top of the list, are, are they in the order of importance or are they just... Not at all. Okay. Of course not. Okay. Well, hey, just hey, some people some people lay their books out differently. So sure, sure. work ethic is is one of the ones I think is an interesting thing. And I think, you know, what, what I want to ha- ask you about is is how you define that and then are these values that you're you want them for yourself or you want them for your kids or they're going to be the value of the whole family or how how does that all play in? That's really interesting that you just asked that right now. I just had two families in the last two weeks tell me that they are doing a book study with my book with their whole families and they are letting each child determine what their own values are, which I think is so beautiful to acknowledge that they might be different. And then they're also coming up with a mission statement based on what they decide their values are, one for the whole family and then each person individually. But for me, work ethic is just about doing your best at everything you decide to do because I feel really strongly that we only have 24 hours in a day and we only get one lifetime and 
the choices that we make about how we're going to spend that time is really important. So if that's true, then I'm going to assume that what you're doing is important to you. And the way that you do it affects how other people perceive you and how you perceive yourself and, of course, the quality of the work that that comes out of whatever it is that you're attending to. So it's really not just about the job. It's about really how you live your life every day. Are you bringing your all to anything that you've decided is important enough to dedicate time and energy to? And when you're thinking about that as a, as a value, are you thinking about it purely in terms of this is something that you should aspire to or that your not working hard reflects on the family in a particular way? Oh, my goodness. It's not even really about working hard as much as it is about working smart and working well. And for me, at least, it's a personal value system. You get to decide for yourself if you are bringing your all to whatever it is that you've decided to put your time into. Did that answer your question? Well, no. I was wondering if if it's a, a becomes a personal value or if you look at it as as a family this is our value and if you don't live up to this value that people will look at our family as maybe being a family that doesn't put its all into things that's that's such an incredibly important concept and more than just work ethic you know one of the two main premises of my book is that we have to acknowledge that each of our kids comes here on their own little journey and our job is to pay attention to what lights them up and figure out why they're here and help them be more of that rather than make them be Mm -hmm. what we think they ought to be or what society thinks they ought to be so that points to a whole lot of other you know parents expecting their kids to be something and, and being concerned about it reflecting on their family yeah well, no, that's one of the hardest things is to to refrain from imagining that everything that our kids do, do reflects on us and, you know, determines sure. whether we're good parents or bad parents if, you know, and, and, and they have a lot of free will. Sure. And, and you know, that's part of um, the other premise besides acknowledging who your kids are, the, the second most important premise is that I believe that when you become an adult, you have a responsibility to kind of go back and excavate everything that was layered upon you beforehand by other people in your life. And one of the, so, so one of my greatest requests of adult people in charge of children, even if they're not your own, is that you do the work. And part of doing the work is kind of not caring quite so much what other people think, but that's a a lot harder to do if you haven't taken the time to be really succinct about what your values are and how you want to live. But when you've done that work, it gets a lot easier to live within your expectations, within your family, without caring quite so much what other people think. I think that's really important. Well, it's partly what other people think, but it's partly what you think of yourself. I mean, it's it's you, you feel good, naturally. If your child does something spectacular, you feel proud of yourself in a way. I think it's a natural thing. You think, well, I must have done something to help help along with that, that they're, they're really doing this fantastic thing. And then, of course, the other side of it is if they do something that's not so spectacular, to think, oh, I, I must have failed. Um, I, I, th- I just think it's a it's a natural thing that we fall into. It's not the best thing. I, obviously, we would like them to live on their own. Uh, eventually, without reflecting on us or without worrying that uh, that it goes the other way. I, I agree. I agree that um, 
there's some work to be done. There's so much growth. There's so much growth as an adult that starts when you have your kids, and it's endless. Um, yeah, but it's it's important to give yourself credit for doing the best you can. Talking with Christine Crockett-Smith, who's the author of 18 Master Values, Be the Parent You Wish You'd Had. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll keep talking to Christine about some of the other values that she's got in the book, looking like uh, looking at fortitude, for example, and justice and creativity. As a few that I want to get to, I'm Armand Brunt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Bullying is not kids being kids. It's not about good homes or bad homes. It's not a normal part of growing up. I shouldn't be afraid to get on the school bus. To turn on my computer. Message. Or walk to my locker. Did you know that a bully will stop his or her behavior in 10 seconds when their peers speak up? Use your voice. Hey, leave him alone. We have the power to stop bullying. Find out more at bullying.org. Where you're not alone. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking to Christine Crockett-Smith, the author of 18 Master Values, Be the Parent You Wish You'd Had. Christine, I wanted to to jump into a couple more. Um, justice was one that I that's popped out in my mind. What do you mean by justice, and how do you how do you make that a value? Because that that's a, I mean, there's so many people who think that they know what justice means, and they're all right, but they're all wrong. You know, it's like, uh, it's, uh, well, that's a good point. It, it is absolutely you know any of the values actually are up for interpretation. If you, all 7.5 billion of us have different life experiences and interpretations of everything that happens, they're all 7.5 different stories. So, you know, to try to say what somebody else's definition of justice is or ought to be, I can't do. But for me, the reason that it was an important thing for me to be focusing on as I was raising my children is from personal experiences of things being thrust upon me as absolutes from the adults in my life and the number of times that I knew it was wrong. You know, one, it's, it's a simple example, but it, it applies. Um, you know, my kids would be in school and they've mastered addition, right? And they've gotten their math license or whatever that shows they've mastered addition and then they're sent home with a four-page worksheet to practice single-digit addition and it seems idiotic to them like i don't understand why i have to do this i've already shown that i know it well as a parent it's such a frustrating thing thing um, with our kids and schools and trying to find the balance between how to handle and manage everything but for me for that one i couldn't really defend it I couldn't really say to them that it made sense for them to take 15 minutes of their evening to prove that they knew something they'd already proved that they knew. So it would have felt unjust to them if I had insisted that they do it. And what I did instead was tell them, you know what, I agree with you, but school's a game and you got to play it. And you can decide not to do it because it doesn't make sense. And then you have to deal with the consequences of that, which will be whatever your grade is for not turning it in. Or you can just play the game. Or you can talk to your teacher and ask her if maybe there's an alternative. 
if you got an A on the test, maybe you don't have to do the homework. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but um, the reason that it was important to me to put it in there was because I think as adults, quite often, we forget to treat little people like humans and treat them with the respect that they deserve. Um, yeah. That's one, one piece of it, anyway. Yeah. You know, one of the other values is creativity. And I was just having this conversation with somebody the other day about kids, it seems, I don't know whether it's a social media thing or it's, I don't know whether it has anything to do with technology at all, but they they don't seem to be as curious about the world. They don't seem to ask why. They seem to assume that they know the answers to things or they know why somebody's doing something instead of questioning and and wondering and it's uh it's interesting i i think but the the idea of encouraging creativity seems to be a really hard thing to do how did you do that creativity i personally believe that we all have it and that all it really is is opening ourselves up to the possibilities of things that haven't existed before, and everybody does them in, in all different ways, of course. Unfortunately, in our country, we have set up a school system that is eight hours a day. Our kids are at school more time than they're at home, and creativity is not only not encouraged, it's almost beat out of them, and I don't mean physically, of course, but they are lauded and applauded and given the most credit for their lack of creativity, for following the rules, learning the facts, listening to the lecture. And unfortunately, if you do have your children in traditional schools, that, that falls to you even more as a parent to make sure you're allowing time and space when they are not distracted by having to go to soccer or all of the other extracurricular things that we put them in, not to mention electronics, and that you're allowing that space and time for them to just be and see what comes up. And how do you express to them, though, the the importance of questioning things and looking at things from different angles or exploring points of view that they might not agree with? That's a daily thing, isn't it? That's like a, oh my gosh, and we're all dealing with this as adults with everyone thinking that their opinion is right and wanting to argue about it. For me, with my kids, for one thing, we traveled a lot, and so they were exposed to other ways of being, which automatically opens up ways of having discussions about other ways of being and thinking. But also, you know, I list in my book a, a bunch of movies and books that affected me. But I, I also mention how by very consciously choosing books and movies and things that you introduce into their lives that are from alternative ways of thinking and being than what they're used to on a daily basis, that opens conversations to talk about that. And also, you know, just giving them the opportunity to be exposed to different kinds of arts and different kinds of music and different kinds of literature. And again, paying attention to, to what lights them up and really grabs them. That's what's going to take them on their own path of wanting to seek and find out more about something is when something lights them up versus what we think ought to light them up. Yeah. 
So I want to talk about two others that might seem like they're flip sides of the same thing or flip sides of each other, pride and humility. And they're, they're not right next to each other. They're separated by a couple. But how do you have kids or how do you express to them or, or help them to learn the value of both of those but not to go in the extreme in either one? These two are the ones I get in the most trouble with, with people who subscribe to particular religions. I was not raised in religion, um, so I was able to kind of come up with my own thoughts about them without factoring in yeah. religions, so, so they're very different than a lot of people. But for me, I, I believe that pride in, in our culture has gotten a little bit of a bad rap. People act like you're not supposed to be happy for yourself and, and applaud yourself, and I think that it's the complete opposite. In fact, you know, there's, there's research, and, you know, Carol Dweck's Mindset is one of the most well-known books about it, but encouraging children to be proud of their own work when, when, they, when they step over just a little bit into risk and master something new, to encourage them to be proud of themselves. Yes, we can be proud of them all day long, but that's just words. But taking that next step to say, aren't you proud of yourself? And make it an internal thing where they are personally interested and invested in trying harder and and learning more and doing a better job. That's what empowers them and gives them the strength to not seek out the approval of others quite so much. I think it's extremely important and undervalued, in fact, to the point of people saying that you shouldn't be proud of yourself. And then humility, I personally believe that all 7.5 billion of us on the planet have equal value. I believe that there are some who are better at some things than others. I think we all have talents that we can grow and and make better but i don't think any of us have more value and so for my kids we just had converse for one thing they got to you know words don't teach that's something that people say they have you you teach so much more by the way that you are but they got to see me their entire lives i treat every human with the exact same dignity and respect as any other human i don't treat a ceo any better than a janitor because I truly believe in my heart that we all have equal value. So they were able to witness that from me while at the same time witnessing other ways of being from other people in their lives. And they were able to kind of decide for themselves which one felt better, you know? And fortunately for me, they all subscribe to that concept that we all have equal value. So to me, that's what humility is. And you can rock it. I mean, you can make a gazillion dollars and have a huge company and employ thousand people, whatever your level, of, your your measure of success is, you can go and be and do huge things, and still not think that you're better than anybody else. Christine Crockett Smith is the author of Eighteen Master Values: Be the Parent You Wish You'd Had. They are eighteen, and actually, there's more than that. As she said, there's a there's additional values, and then there's a few practical things we need to teach our children. Lots of thought provoking ideas in here, and worksheets, and all sorts of stuff. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
You must be your fairy godmother. <laughs> yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number and get your little pumpkin there safely in a booster seat. Oh, thank you. For more information, visit boosterseat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, the holidays are long past, but I'm thinking of giving my 18-month-old my old iPad. She loves playing with it, and I think she should have her own. My husband disagrees. What do you think? I'd hold off for a while. There's a lot of information out there on technology's effect on children, but very little on toddlers as young as yours. What there is, however, paints a pretty grim picture. Here are some of the arguments in favor and against. Argument number one, in favor. Our kids see us interacting with screens of every kind in our lives. Kids who don't have superior tech skills will be at a disadvantage as they grow up. Here's the counter-argument. Children are being pushed to grow up too quickly. What they need is time to relax, enjoy life, and be a kid. The research is clear. Young children learn everything better by interacting with their parents than they do from a machine. They also need to physically interact with their world, something they can't do with 2D images on a phone or tablet. Argument number two. It's only for a few minutes at a time. What harm could there be in that? Here's the counter-argument. Researcher Karen Archer found that 62% of children under one year old and 89% of children under two had been introduced to at least one mobile device. Pediatrician Catherine Birkin and her colleagues found that 20% of kids under 18 months were using handheld devices, an average of 28 minutes per day. They also found that the more time a child spent on a device, the higher the risk of an expressive speech delay, meaning that they have trouble using words and language. Argument number three. Although computers and tablets aren't nearly as social as reading, phone and tablet-based apps are far more interactive than television. Children as young as a year can use computers to learn shapes, colors, numbers, and opposites, and many apps offer opportunities for creativity without all the mess of finger paints. 2D images are also safer because they can't be put into the mouth or swallowed. Here's the counter-argument. First, kids under about two and a half aren't old enough to be able to understand the symbolic nature of what's on the screen. In other words, that the 2D image of a dog is not a real dog. Second, Children under about 30 months don't have the physical dexterity to easily manipulate objects on screen. Clicking and applying consistent pressure to drag and drop, for example, is a pretty complicated task for little hands. Third, toddlers learn by actively engaging the world, touching, feeling, pushing, pulling, throwing, tasting, and so on. 2D images don't allow kids to learn about an object's weight, texture and how it looks from a variety of angles. In addition, dragging and dropping blocks to make a tower on a screen is very different from actually trying to balance blocks on top of each other. Argument number four. Apps are colorful and engaging and kids love them and it keeps them from getting bored. The counter-argument. No child this age should be getting bored. 
The world and everything in it is new and exciting. App use in moderation shouldn't be a problem. However, too many parents don't supervise their children's mobile device usage or impose adequate time restrictions. As a result, too many kids are spending time on a screen when they should be running around. It's no coincidence that rates of obesity and overweight are rising, even among infants and toddlers. I've also heard from several pediatricians that some of their young patients who spend a lot of time on devices have poorer fine motor skills and muscle tone than their less digitally savvy patients. And doctors in England's National Health Service are reporting that many children are starting preschool without the hand strength and dexterity to hold a pencil. They blame overuse of touchscreen devices. I think the evidence here is pretty clear. Toddlers and tech don't belong together, at least not for a while. That said, I know a lot of readers disagree. So sometime in the next month or so, we'll talk about how to safely introduce your toddler to tech. If you've got a comment or suggestion for us here at Positive Parenting, please do send it over. You can do that, of course, through our website, mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. But as you know, there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. My mom is a hero. She goes into burning buildings, she finds people inside who need to be saved, and then she helps them get out, even when she can't breathe or see, even when she's a little scared. My mom is a firefighter. She does great things. And the best thing she can do is come home. The U.S. Fire Administration, a part of FEMA, reminds you to protect the heroes who protect our lives. Have a smoke alarm on every floor. Test it monthly. Replace the battery yearly. Do your part to get out before firefighters have to come in. The fact is, 60% of all fire deaths occur in a home without a working smoke alarm. The good news is, that's a fact that can change. For more information, visit the U.S. Fire Administration at www.usfa.fema.gov. Working for a fire-safe America. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brock, the founder of MrDad.com. Thank you for staying with us. In 2014, Jason Friedman and his wife hired a night nurse named Jana to help them navigate the first few weeks of being parents. With two full-time jobs and not a clue what they were doing, Jana was a luxury that helped them through the hard parts of parenting a newborn. As a wonderful bonus, Jana was also one of the nicest women they'd ever met and quickly became one of their closest friends. Not only did Jana teach them how to be parents, she miraculously got their newborn baby, Alex, sleeping 12 hours a night by the 10th week. There were no tears, no talks of self-soothing, and no struggles. Jana was gifted at what she did, and they were the beneficiaries. Alex has always been the happiest, fuss-free child, and they believe that that's in large part because she slept so well from an early age. Meanwhile, Jason and his wife were given the gift of rest, a gift that most new parents cannot even fathom. 
Jana had always planned to write a book so she could give the gift of rest to more families, especially those who couldn't afford her services. But unfortunately, she died too soon. Many of the families that Jana worked with got together and created a foundation. They also got together and worked on a book based on Jana's remarkable method. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about in today's show. And it all starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this. People have all kinds of excuses for not saving energy. I'll turn it off later so we don't have those Energy Star appliances. Well, maybe it's time to stop making excuses and save the energy and resources we can. You just never know what people will need in the future. We can all help save more energy for tomorrow. What's your excuse? For more energy-saving tips that also save money, visit loseyourexcuse.gov parents. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Ad Council, and this station. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Jason Friedman, who is one of the co-authors of The Dream Feed Method, How We Got Our Babies Sleeping from Dusk Till Dawn by Month Four Without Crying It Out. Jason, thanks for joining us. Uh, I appreciate you having me. So tell us a little bit about Jana. I talked about her in the introduction to the show, but I want to get your your perspective. You were You were one of her clients. Yeah, and and I was one of her friends, and she was uh, one of one of my friends. And um, Jana was a wonderful human being in this world. And what she had was the ability to take care of a young family at a moment when that family needed her most, right when they were having their first baby. And Jana came into our lives, and she helped us learn how to be parents. And she had this gift she gave us, which I didn't know was unique as it was. She helped our first baby, Alex, sleep. Uh, from dusk till dawn within the first three months, and she taught us how to do it. And I just thought Jana was going to take over the world uh, teaching parents how to do this. And she was one of 14, so she uh, lived her life taking care of kids, and she tragically passed away a, a couple years after she was with us. And one of the reasons we wrote this book was to honor her memory, uh, but it was also because Jana felt passionately that Moms and dads and babies were struggling more than they had to, and she really wished that they knew some of the things that she had figured out in her career. And so we, we wrote a book to pass on her message. Well, let's talk about some of what that message is. Is there a philosophy, and then we can talk about the, the nuts and bolts of it, but is there an, an overriding philosophy about the, the, that you need to treat babies in a particular way or do certain kinds of things, or, or how does that work? Yeah, if you're to... To, to sum it all up into a, like a single sentence, Jana believed that babies sleep longer when their bellies are full. And once okay. you get to that, there's a whole bunch of techniques she had and a whole bunch of reasons that babies' bellies aren't as full as they could be. But that, but that was it. There, there wasn't any like real big magic to it. She believed that babies slept longer when their bellies were full. And one of the things that's happened over the last 40 years or so is um, we've we've become very nervous about giving advice to moms that in any way might uh, in, inhibit how long they're able to successfully breastfeed. And Jana believed that for some women, breastfeeding comes easily, and for some it doesn't, and some have great success with milk supply and some don't. And she was very, very pro-breastfeeding, but she also believed that it, there was nothing wrong with giving a baby a supplemental bottle in addition. 
and it could be express breast milk or it could be formula. But she was brought up that way, and, and that's how she worked with all of the babies she worked with. And one of the things that it meant was that all of her babies slept longer. And she started to realize that um, most moms don't have as much milk to provide at night as their babies would consume. And so she started recommending uh, bottles to feed. And during the same time that a bunch of moms were being told never introduce a bottle uh, was a time in which uh, other sleep researchers had figured out that babies could learn how to self-soothe and kind of the whole sleep research went down this thread of um, crying it out or not crying it out. And for Jana, with all of her babies, crying it out just was never a thing she needed to do. And so she was wondering while ever, why everyone was so obsessed with self-soothing. It wasn't even an issue in her babies. So I'll, I'll pause there for a second, but that's kind of the, the thread of how Jana figured out this method. But she was still advocating with, with milk, because I know that when I was a, a baby, and, and certainly this went on for quite a while, there was a push towards getting off of bottles early and starting kids on solid food. I mean, to the extent that it's solid, it's really mush to begin with, but more food food, because that apparently would stay, or the theory was it would stay in the stomach longer. It, was, it seemed like it was a similar philosophy. Yeah, and, and, and I generally think that's true. And one of the um, uh, researchers uh, and pediatricians who co-authored the book, Dr. Brian Simon, he's got uh, some research that shows that introducing solids earlier has no maleffect on kids, no maleffect on breastfeeding success, and helps them sleep longer. So he's, he's generally a strong advo advocate of it. We take the perspective in the book that if you want to be 100% breast milk, we support that. If you as a parent want to be formula, we support that. If you want to introduce solids, we support that. All three are possible. We also take the perspective, by the way, that you can choose to do co-sleeping or room sharing or independent rooms. You can choose uh, a whole bunch of different things. The Dream Feed Method offers a few pieces of advice, which basically come down to if you take extra steps to ensure that your baby has a full belly at night and you offer Dream Feeds throughout the night, and you focus less on self-soothing and crying and more on just making sure your baby has uh, sustenance in her belly, she's going to sleep longer. And that, that little piece of advice uh, has worked across many different philosophies that various parents hold to. And, and one of the pieces we like both about your podcast and we agree with in our book is uh, this advice is good advice for anyone that wants to take it, and there's nothing any parent can do that's wrong as far as we're concerned, if it's working for them. And so we, we, we intend to supplement whatever philosophies they've, they've chosen for themselves and their family. Okay. Uh, that, I mean, just, I'm trying to, to get my head around this because I think it's, it contradicts in some ways some of the wisdom that we hear about you don't need to supplement, you don't need to, uh, to do, you know, wake up a sleeping baby. So I want to get into some of the details of how this all works. Yeah. Um, talk about what a dream feed is. I mean, it sounds, I mean, just initially, I think somebody who hadn't heard it would probably think, oh, you're, you're waking the baby up in the middle of the night to feed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll explain a top-up feeding and a dream feed. So the top-up okay. feeding is immediately past that final feeding of the night around the 7 p.m. feeding. You prepare a bottle of either formula or express breast milk, and you, as, as the baby has, has fully fed uh, at the breast, you offer additional milk. And what we found is many moms uh, start to run short of milk at night. And so 
additional sustenance at that particular moment, you just offer it to the baby and the baby will take as much as fills her up. Then she's going to sleep a little bit longer than she otherwise would have made it. And let's just say, you know, the baby's a few weeks old and sleeping in general about three hours. Maybe she goes four hours instead of three hours. What a dream feed is, is going back in before the baby wakes up crying, before the baby needs to be settled down, before um, the whole house is woken up, just going in and either with a bottle or at the breast, offer some additional milk while the baby's still sleeping. And the sucking action is physical, and a baby who's hungry will start drinking without really waking up. And allow a baby to feed while mostly or all asleep, and then put the baby back down. And when we do that in the middle of the night, the babies simply start sleeping longer periods and don't have this experience of waking up, becoming hysterical, needing to be settled down. And we remove that whole piece of whether you need to teach your baby to learn how to settle themselves down and instead just ensure that the baby is fed throughout the night and as the baby learns to take more milk in and last longer with it, those periods between feeding start to naturally extend. And that's like the, the miracle of the dream feed method is you can do this for each of the nighttime feedings. So one of the things I did with my wife uh, on our second and our third baby is that 4 a.m. feeding I would do with a bottle. And my wife was pumping. I had expressed breast milk. And I would offer a dream feed to our babies. At 4 a.m., my, my wife would sleep right through it. And the babies, they would also sleep right through it, but they would take three or four ounces of milk. And that allowed the whole night to continue. But fast forward an additional month, and the, the periods between dream feeds had elongated significantly as the babies were learning to drink more. Hmm. It just it sounds so so interesting and so simple in a way. But so for the first little bit, it's not like the babies are sleeping all the way through the night, you're still getting up. Right. But there's a, there's a particularly powerful piece about the ability to work with your spouse. Having a partner who can do half the nighttime feedings, it is, it's game-changing for a parent. One of the things Jana cared about, she most, most importantly, was the safety and health of the baby every single time. But once you satisfy safety and health of the baby, right up there is the health of the mom. And then maybe slightly behind the, the, the health of the partner. Um, and as a dad, being able to do one of the feedings at night and let my wife, who had just given birth, sleep six hours, it is just the best thing in the world to offer your partner. And knowing that I can have an intimate moment with my baby at 4 a.m., let my, let my wife sleep until 7 a.m., I mean, it, 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 it just gives us a role yeah. in, in parenthood that's just so special it's, it's hard to describe how magical that is and out of and additionally the baby learns how to sleep by themselves without crying i mean it's, it's really a wonderful thing but just yeah. alone being able to take half the feedings from your wife it's just the best talking to jason friedman who's one of the co-authors of the dream feed method how we got our babies to sleep from dusk till dawn we're going to take a quick break when we come back we will keep talking to jason I'm four years old, and I'm the only one in my whole class that can tie his own shoes. My mom took me to the circus for my birthday. Half my friends already went, but now I've gone too. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. 
but I got five bucks yesterday, I believe. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Go to CasaFamilyDay.org, take the Family Day Pledge, and get tips on how to talk to your kids about drugs and alcohol. Have dinner with them often, and you can significantly lower their risk of substance abuse. Dinner makes a difference. A message from the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brodovich. Just joining us, talking with Jason Friedman, who's one of the co-authors of The Dream Feed Method, How We Got Our Babies Sleeping from Dusk Till Dawn by Month Four Without Crying It Out. So how long did it take to get for the baby to be sleeping all the way through the night without you having to get up and do those middle-of-the-night feedings? So for us and for most of the, the parents that have, have read the book and have, have worked with either Jana or, or after Jana passed away, um, had, had read the book themselves and did it, somewhere around the third month up until about the fourth month, it, their babies could get to uh, dusk till dawn or about 12 hours. Uh, and that's been, uh, we, we never say it's 100% of the time every baby's unique, but it's, it's pretty consistent that parents can get there with their babies and um uh, really, it was sometime around the sixth week or so that a, a lot of progress starts being made mm-hmm. and fair, fairly consistently, about an hour extra sleep per night. Yeah. Let me, let me actually ask that question in a different way. How how long was it before you were able to sleep all the way through the night? Or not you personally, but you as a couple. One, one or the both of you sleeping all the way through the night without so, having to get up to do these feedings? So my wife and I started switching off who was responsible for for any of the feedings at night in the seventh week. And so as of the seventh week, my wife took the night off 100% of the time, or what, what, took 100% of the night off every other night. And, and the, the feeding, by the way, that we were doing at that time was a single feeding at 11 p.m. So when, when I was on, it meant that I would either stay up or wake up at 11 p.m., do one feeding, and then our baby would go, would stay asleep effectively and sleep until 7 a.m. So as far as the hangover of, of being sleep-deprived, it ended for both of us before the end of the second month. Wow. And then it, it took another month or two before that 11 p.m. feeding started to go away for the baby completely. Okay. And... When you're talking to a lot of other people, and it sounds like there were a lot of other people working on the book and other other of uh, Jenna's clients that you came in contact with, one of the things that, that you probably know from having more than one child is that their kids are all different, that their their temperaments are different. And some kids are naturally more inclined to sleep through the night than others. Did you find that this method worked regardless of the temperament of the child? I'm going to always be hesitant to say that it's always worked all the time. Right, um, but, right. Um, but but I'll give you one story. Uh, one of the mothers that's quoted in the book, Emily, she had a preemie a month early. Uh, 
gaining weight was a big issue. Breastfeeding was very difficult. Uh, and the temperament was very tough. And her baby was getting up about five times a night in, around, in and around the seventh week when That's she really brutal. started digging in on the dream feed. And she called me just absolutely in tears. And I said, give it a try. I can't promise you it'll work. And take your pediatrician's advice first. And that is my, my standard way of offering advice reluctantly to friends. Um, usually what I tell friends is all parenting is tough and we're all in it together. But if you actually ask for advice, <laughs> I, I, I hand you the book, and that's what I say. And so, what she did is she started offering the top of bottles and the dream feeds. And what you do when your baby's not sleeping is you just hope that they sleep a little bit longer. And so, let's just say that Emily's baby is getting up at 4 a.m. for a feed. If it's a typical strategy, you're hoping, hoping, hoping that your baby doesn't wake up at 4 a.m. and maybe makes it to 4:15, or maybe makes it to 4:30, maybe makes it to five. The dream feed method actually works in the opposite direction. So what I told Emily is set an alarm, and at 3.45 a.m., since you know your baby's going to be getting up at 4, 3.45 a.m., wake up and go and offer the baby the breast or have your husband do a, a bottle of express breast milk and help him sleep through that last three hours. And so at 3.45 a.m., one of them would get up and do that feeding. And instead of waking up at four, the baby would just sleep all the way until 7 a.m. And once that was working for a few days, I said, all right, now try it at 3.30 a.m. and see what happens. And so instead of making it till 7 a.m. the next morning, uh, their son would wake up at about 6.30. So he was maintaining the same length of sleep period, but it was just moving early. And I said, okay, now stick with it for a little while until he gets back to 7 a.m. And that worked for Emily. The feeding became 3.30, then 3.15, then 3, and she just moved ever so consistently 15 minutes earlier per night, but only every other night or so. And a month later, she was offering that dream feed at 1 a.m., and the baby was sleeping until 7 a.m., and she thought her whole life had changed. And I just said, it, nothing changes, 10 to 15 minutes a night, and you don't even have to do it every night in a row. And she went from the fussiest, toughest baby ever to 12 hours a night, and it took two months. And wow. that is easy temperament, tough temperament, struggling, gassiness. I've seen that happen so many times now. And the, the, the key is there's not this moment when all the feeding goes away. There's not this moment when supportiveness goes away. It's just 10 minutes a night. Now, I think some pediatricians and some research indicates that people who chase a baby around with a bottle um, are perhaps causing some uh, additional obesity because the kids are not learning how to assess for themselves whether they're full or not because there's a bottle in their mouth and they're, they're expected to drink from it. Do you think that that's a concern? Um, so al almost all research, but by the way, usually starts post six months. So I, I, I don't think any research addresses this period. Um, I'm, I'm fairly certain actually. Uh, but, but I will say this, we're talking about a couple of feedings a day, the nighttime feedings, right? What a parent does during the rest of the day. I just say, you do you pick whatever you want to pick, talk to your pediatrician, talk to your friends, talk to your parents and and aunts and uncles, and whatever choices you make during the day are 
80% of the feeding your baby receives overall. Sure. And if you do something dramatically different than what we recommend during the day and and then at night you're still receiving the benefits of the dream feed and that your baby's sleeping, it's probably not going to affect anything else. But all the babies we've seen, we've checked percentiles, we've, we've monitored through pediatricians, there's been so much, and, and we just haven't seen any change. I mean, hmm. once a, even parents that started the dream feed late, a trend on, on uh, percentile growth, head circumference, height, weight, it just doesn't really change. Uh, the okay. babies, when weighed, they take in virtually identical, the same amount of milk in any 24-hour period that they would have. They just take it at slightly different times. They're taking a much bigger feeding at the beginning of the night and a much bigger feeding at the beginning of the morning, and all the other feedings stay the same. And that's uh, that's been very consistent, which right. is what happens when you learn how to sleep longer. You learn to fill your belly up more than you do in other, other feedings. And we, we only have just about a minute left, but I just want to have you address. So you, you mentioned that you're supportive of whether it's breastfeeding or bottle feeding. Um, so, but I'm wondering, would you do a breastfeeding in the middle of the night? Because that would involve more of a wake up. Uh, so there's a little bit of a letdown that has to happen, but a baby who's hungry, which, you know, in, in the case of Emily, 345, when you, you know that baby was going to wake up at four, that baby's hungry the baby will start physically suckling and will cause a letdown to occur. And that will work with a bottle or with the breast. And we've done this so many times now, it works just fine. The value of the bottle is that dad can do it. Right. Or any partner. That's, but, but I don't think there's anything that says it needs to be a bottle. And, and I'll address this since we only have a minute left. There is no research anywhere in the world with any randomly controlled studies that show that using one or two bottles at night causes nipple confusion. None, to the point that um, every time someone's concerned about it, I say it's one or two bottles in the middle of the night, and if ever at 7 a.m. the baby doesn't want the breast, just stop using the bottles. And I've never had someone call back and say it's an issue. Well, as long as breastfeeding is established, and yeah, you're not going to get any nipple yep. confusion and, from that. Yeah. Yep. And r- and right there in the book, we say wait till breastfeeding's successful. If that right. takes two weeks. Wait two weeks. If it takes a month, wait a month. But always always wait for breastfeeding to be successful for the goals that you wanted. And then in the middle of the night, one or two bottles isn't going to change it. Jason Friedman is one of the co-authors of the Dream Feed Method, how we got our babies sleeping from dusk till dawn by month four without crying it out. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Really interesting. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.